we gave you a foundational statement as we began that series that really is, is a, a defining principle for us as a fellowship. And I want to put that statement back up on the screen. And one last time, I want, to, want us to read it together out loud. And you say, man, we've read this together out loud every week. Well, that's by design. We want you to remember it, okay? We want this to become a part of who you are. So let's read it together. One, two, three. Church is not an event we attend. Church is a family to which we belong. I hope over these six weeks together that you have wrapped your heart and mind more around what that simple statement says. The Gospel of John says it this way, but as many as received him, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to be called the children of God. When we come to know Jesus, when we believe on him, when we receive him as our Lord and Savior, we are born again into a relationship with God, but we are also born again into a relationship with each other as the family of God. Church is not just an event that we go to once a week. It's a family to which we belong. Let me say that to you a couple of other ways to kind of help drive it home. Church is not a place where we gather. Church is a people that we share life with. Church is not a building that we go to. Church is a body that we're a part of, a member of. We're a family. Today, our worship team has done a fantastic job of leading us in worship as a family, trying as best we can as a large family to create that dynamic in your living room where we sit around together and just sing songs and worship and and rejoice in the season that is Christmas because we are, before we are anything else, we're a family. In the New Testament, over 40 times, there's a little power phrase that all the, all the writers use, some in the Gospels, some in the Epistles, but it's this little phrase, one another, and it's attached to over 40 different actions that we are to demonstrate towards each other. As we live out our family relationships with each other, the Bible gives us over 40 descriptors of what it looks like to live in the family of God. What we did as a pastoral team is we took a few days and we went away up to Utah and we just sat before the Lord with the Bible open in these 40 statements and said, God, what does it look like for a fellowship to live this out? And we took those 40 plus one another statements in the New Testament and we boiled them down to five defining statements for us as a fellowship. I want to review those statements. We've covered four of them so far. We're going to put each of them on the screen, and we're just going to read them together. All right? You ready? Here we go. We're going to put the first one up. It's love. So let's read it. Because I belong, I am responsible to love others as Christ has loved me. Let's put the second one up. It's honor. Let's read it. Because I belong, I am responsible to consider others as more important than myself. Let's look at the third one, disciple. Because I belong, 
I am responsible to lead others to follow Jesus and obey his word. The fourth one we looked at last weekend is serve. Because I belong, I am responsible to meet the needs of others. I hope you notice a repetitive phrase in those statements, and again, it's by design. Because I belong, I am what? Responsible. We don't like that word in our culture today. Responsibility. Because we are a part of the family of God, we have a responsibility to each other that is that is laid out for us in Scripture in these 40 plus one another statements. These are not optional things for us as believers. They are responsibilities that we have in the family of God as we relate to each other. I hope these statements that we've given you are not just in one ear and out the other. That was a nice little series. Let's move on to the next one. But I hope you live with these. We've taken... This six weeks, and we've written daily devotionals that we've sent out to you via email and through our website to try to get us in the Word and to, to get us around these principles so that they're not just information that we hear, but they're literally principles of Scripture truth that transforms the way we live and relate with each other. My prayer is that as a result of this series, we are never the same again as a fellowship. We're never the same again. The fifth and final of those statements we come to today. And of all the statements that we've uncovered so far, I believe that this one that we're going to talk about today is the least practiced principle in the North American church context. And it is most desperately needed. You see, there's something unique about our church context in North America. And what is unique about our context of church in North America is that we are church-saturated. Compared to the rest of the world, our context is church-saturated. Now, we live here in the western United States that is, of all of the United States of America, the western United States is the most unchurched, and yet still in the western context, we find churches in every city in the western United States. We are a church-saturated context. And because of that, it has produced a lack of faithfulness to this particular area of responsibility that we're going to unpack today. Today we're going to talk about the responsibility that we have in the body of Christ to reconcile relationships with each other. Now how has our church-saturated context led us to ignore and not be faithful to this responsibility? Well, let me explain that. You see, because we live in a church-saturated context, as soon as somebody upsets me in church, or as soon as something doesn't go my way at church, or as soon as a decision is made that is not completely what I want it to be, because we live in a church-saturated context, we just pick up our toys and go play somewhere else, right? Listen, if you're a member of a church in Afghanistan, you don't have that option. 
You're in China. You can't just go to the church on the next block. In the early church, when we read these letters and read these principles that are fleshed out, they didn't have the option of 36 different denominations like Baskin-Robbins where they could just pick and choose the one that fit them the best, right? There was the church in Thessalonica. Emphasis on the word the. The church in Corinth, emphasis on the word the, meaning there wasn't but one. So if somebody upsets you, guess what you had to do? You had to figure it out. You had to understand how to reconcile those relationships because picking up your toys and going and playing somewhere else wasn't an option. And we live in a culture in America where we treat the church with triviality and we quickly walk away from relationships and we sweep problems under a rug and we don't deal with situations and we run from them and take them from one fellowship to another fellowship to another fellowship. The problem is we keep taking the problem with us. That'll hit some of you later on. When believers can't reconcile, we misrepresent the power of the gospel to a watching world. We don't have time to to read it, but in Ephesians 2, you write it down, read it later, verses 11 through 16. The gospel, Jesus came to reconcile us to God and to reconcile us to each other. The core message of the gospel is reconciliation. And when we are living out the power of the gospel, we have been made right with God. And through the power of the gospel, we get made right with each other. And when we inside the church can't work through those relationships and bring reconciliation. It grossly misrepresents the power of the gospel to a watching world. They know how to pick up their toys and go home. What the world doesn't know how to do is reconcile. So this morning, you maybe can already tell... I'm going to talk to you very candidly today. Good little Christmas week talk, right? We got that coming Tuesday, all right? So come back Tuesday and I'll give you the Christmas week talk. I want to talk to you today about reconcile. Here's the statement. The fifth and final statement. Because I belong, I am responsible to do all that I can to pursue right relationships with others. Because I belong, I'm responsible to do all that I can to pursue right relationships with others. Now, don't misunderstand me today as I start talking about this. I'm not talking about people who leave a church because God has spoken to them and called them out of that fellowship to go and 
connect. God's called some people out of our fellowship to connect in other fellowships, and they've sat down and told me about that and the ministry that God opened up for them. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about when we leave a fellowship because of biblical or moral issues where there's tried to be attempts of reconciliation and there is no. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about where we don't try to reconcile. We have responsibility to reconcile. Unresolved conflict and relational brokenness have no place in the family of God. Let me say it again. Unresolved conflict and relational brokenness have no place in the family of God. Let me show it to you. Look on the screen at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. Listen to what Paul writes to the church at Corinth. Now, the church at Corinth had some <laughs> problems. If you're a student of the Word and you know the context of Corinthians, you know that that is a gross understatement. The church at Corinth had some problems, all right? Listen to the way Paul opens this letter. Chapter 1, verse 10. Now I exhort you. The word exhort here, it's interesting, Paul was an apostle. He could have said, I command you. But Paul here is not speaking from his position of authority as an apostle. Paul is speaking from the passion of his heart as a brother in Christ. And the word exhort here could literally be translated to urge. It could be translated, I'm begging you. Paul opens the letter to the Corinthian church and he says, listen, I am begging you. And if that wasn't enough passion, listen what he said next. By the name of Jesus himself. I want us to hear that today. Hear the passion in Paul's heart as he says, I am begging you in the authority of Jesus Christ that you all agree and there be no divisions among you. The word division here is an interesting word. It's Greek word schisma. We get our word schism from that word. It's a word in the Greek language that, that had a literal meaning. It literally meant to tear a piece of cloth. That's the word schisma. Paul says, let there be no torn relationships among you. This clause used to be together. Now it's not. It's been torn into two pieces. Paul here is saying that there should never be a broken relationship between a brother or sister in Christ. There should not be division in the Christian community. No place for that. Paul says, I'm begging you. There's no place for that. Eugene Peterson is a great linguistic scholar. And I want you to read the way that he translated this verse that I just read for you. 1 Corinthians 1.10. Look at it on the screen. He said, I have a serious concern to bring up with you, my friends. Use Using the authority of Jesus, our master, I'll put it as urgently as I can. You must get along with each other. You must learn to be considerate of one another, cultivating a common life. 
We're responsible to do all that we can to pursue right relationships with others. So what does it look like? What does it look like to practice that? Well, I'm glad you asked that this morning. I want you to take your Bible, turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, Paul is writing the church at Colossae about this same principle. I want you to listen to what he says. Verse 12. So, as those who have been chosen of God. Now, understand what he's saying right there. He's saying this is who you are. So, as those who've been chosen of God, holy and beloved. He's talking to you about, he's talking to us today saying, okay, this is who you are. Now, because of who you are, you've been bought with a price. You've been born again into relationship with God. You're a part of the beloved. He's made you holy. He's declared you to be righteous. God's reconciled you to himself. Now, Paul says, because of who you are, look at it. Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. This is where I want to focus, verse 13 this morning. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you. Well, that's uncomfortable. So also should you. Look at verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called into one body, and be thankful. These phrases that Paul uses here, it's interesting. The, the, the church at Corinth, as you read the book of Corinthians, you understand there was a lot of issues in the church at Corinthians. There, there, there were a lot of uh, brokenness, a lot of division, a lot of divisiveness, but, but you don't get that in Colossians. When you read Colossians, you don't, you don't pick up that there are... So, so what Paul is doing in Corinth and in the book of Corinthians is Paul is dealing with a problem and he's highlighting it. But here in the book of Colossians, he's not highlighting a problem. He's just describing what normal procedure should be in the fellowship. And the tense of these words communicates that. They're all in the present active, meaning this isn't for an isolated incident. This is not what you do in a moment. This is the pattern and practice of our lives as believers. We're to bear with one another. We're to forgive each other. We're to let the peace of God rule in our relationships. That's not the exception. It's the rule. It's the norm. So there are three statements that describe what it looks like to pursue right relationships, and I want to give them to you. Here's the first one. Bear with one another. We're to bear with one another. Now, that sounds like a principle we've heard in another letter Paul wrote when Paul said we are to bear one another's burdens. You've heard that before, right? How many of you have heard that? Bear one another's burdens, right? That's not what this is talking about. When you bear somebody's burden, you're walking along with them, helping them with a problem. This bear with one another, the other person is the problem. You see the difference? I'm not bearing their problem with them. I'm bearing them. 
The word bear is a, a Greek word that comes from two words put together. The two words put together are the word in and the word to hold. So you put it together and it's this principle of holding something in. It's the idea of restraining oneself. It's the idea of having patience towards someone in regards to their errors or their weaknesses or their offenses. It's the idea of putting up with others when they fail or act differently than expected. Now, there are two sides to this word, and that's why it's, we, we wrestled with this as a pastoral team trying to come up with another way to say bearing with one another, but every English word you decide to substitute in there for the word bear is really, it's only one side of the coin of what bearing with. Bearing with somebody has, has two sides to the coin. Here's the first side. It is to accept one another for who we are in Christ. It's the idea of patience. I'm patient with someone because I accept them as my brother or sister in Christ. I accept them for who they are in Christ. It's withholding. It's, it's being patient. The second side of this coin is to relate or to respond to someone, not just based on what they do, but based on what they will become in Christ. It's like with your kids. As a parent, you don't relate to your child simply based on what they do. You relate to your child based on what you know they will become. If that was the finished product, when you're changing that diaper, if that's the finished product, something's not right there, right? We understand that one day it's not going to be like that. So we relate to them not based on what they're doing right now, but based on what they will become. That's this idea of bearing with one another. I don't, I don't accept someone based on what they do. I accept them based on who they are in Christ. I'm patient with them, and I restrain from responding to them based on what they do to me. I respond to them based on what I know they will become because they are his child. Let me give you four realities about every child of God real quick, all right? Let me just run through these real quick. I'm going to put them up on the screen. We're going to move fast through them, but I want you to hear this. Ephesians 2.10 says that every believer is God's masterpiece. You see it up here? Look at it. For we are his, say it out loud, workmanship. That word workmanship is a, a word out of the field of the arts. It means a, a, a piece of art, a, a piece of craftsmanship, a masterpiece. We, say that loud, we, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we could walk in them. We are the workmanship of God. Every child of God, every child of God is God's masterpiece. Say that with me. Say, I am a masterpiece. One, two, three. I am a masterpiece. You are a masterpiece of God. You're a masterpiece. Now, let me show you the second reality. Philippians 1, 6. 
Philippians 1.6 says, he will finish what he started. It says, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. I am God's masterpiece. And here's the second reality. God's going to finish what he started. He will perfect that which he began in me. Let me show you the third one. Look at the third one. The third one's Philippians 2.13. We are in a process. Listen to what it says. For it is God who is what? Say it out loud. At work. Now, that could literally be translated continuously at work. God is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Here's what that means. We are in a process. I want you to look at the person next to you, and here's what I want you to say. I'm not done. We're not done yet. Hey, we are his masterpiece. He is going to finish what he started in Jesus, and we are in a process where God is at work in us to finish all that he began. Listen, oh, this is so good. Listen, when he finishes, we will be like Jesus. Look at it. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared as what we will be. Isn't that a place to say amen, right? Here's what that means. Hey, you don't look like you're going to yet. It hadn't appeared yet what we will be, but look at it. We know that when he appears, say it out loud, we will be like him. We are God's masterpiece. He will finish what he started. We are in a process, and when he finishes, we will be like him. So here's what bearing with one another is really all about. Bearing with one another is about our faith in God's process to finish what he started in the life of every child of God. You see, to bear with you, I know you're not done yet. Who I know today is not who you're going to be. Now, who you are today may frustrate me. Who I am today may frustrate you. Who I am today may cause you to wring your hands and want to pull your hair out. But let me tell you something. Who I am today is not who I'm going to be. So we can bear with each other. Because we know the one who began something in us is going to finish what he began. And when you understand, think about this. What if the person sitting next to you, look at the person sitting next to you. What if you knew right now that person's going to become president of the United States? What if you knew that? Hey, let me tell you what. That changed the way you relate to them, right? They may annoy you, but they just became your best friend, right? You're going to invite them over. You're going to, why? Because you're not relating to them based on who they are. You're relating to them based on what they're going to become. Let me tell you what I just laid out for you. What we're going to become is glorious. We are children of the king. We will be made like him. So today we bear with one another and we relate with each other, not based on who we are, but who we're going to be. We be you got that one? Bearing with one another? All right, let me give you a second one. Before I do that, let me read you a quote. Matthew Henry said this. Look at it on the screen. We have all of us something which needs to be born with. <laughs> That'll help. You're not the only one doing the bearing. Just let me let you in on that secret. 
Some of us are bearing with you. And this is a good reason why we should bear with others in what is disagreeable to us. We all got something needs to be born with. So there's a good reason to bear with something in others. Bearing with one another. Second word. Forgiving one another. Forgive one another. Paul said bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Now, there are two words in the Greek New Testament that are translated into English as forgive. Two different words. This word is the Greek word charizomai. Now, last weekend I talked to you about that word charis, which means grace. This word for forgive comes from the root word grace. Charizomai. It means literally to be gracious. And he says we're to be gracious to whoever has a complaint against anyone. The word complaint here is a word that means reason to blame or find fault. It's interesting, the word complaint, this is the only place in the whole Greek New Testament this word is used. Only place. It means that you have a right to be mad. Somebody did something wrong. And here's what he said. Just be gracious. Well, why would I do that? Because he said next, that's what the Lord did for you. He said, be gracious to whoever has a complaint against anyone. Why? Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you just as that little just as is not just a comparative he's not saying we're to forgive like Jesus forgave it's really a an issue of conformity it's the same kind it's the same grace here's what he's saying the same grace that you've received this way hey just turn and let him through you give it to the people around you same grace you say that Uh, That seems impossible. It is left to us. Because listen to me, that's not who we are naturally. But it is who He is. And to the degree that I allow Him to manifest His life through me, let me tell you what it looks like. Grace. Grace. How did He forgive us? He forgave us freely. Here's what that means. We didn't do anything to deserve it. (laughs) As a matter of fact, he forgave me before I even did it. Say, what do you mean by that? Jesus died on the cross over 2,000 years ago. I hadn't committed one sin yet. And yet God in his sovereignty decided in eternity past that he was going to forgive me. Not on the basis of who I am, but on the basis of who he is. It's free. I didn't deserve it. We don't forgive people because they deserve it. His forgiveness was complete. All my sin. Not just some of them. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. 
All of them. His forgiveness is eternal. Let me tell you what that means. He doesn't ever bring it up again. Let me show it to you. Look at Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25. Look at it on the screen. He said, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sin. We say forgive and forget. How hard is that, right? God doesn't forget. If God forgot, he'd cease to be God. Let me tell you what he does. He chooses not to remember. If you think you can forgive somebody and forget about it, that's not going to happen. Let me tell you what you can do. You can choose not to remember it. I'm just not picking it back up. I'm letting it go. Why? Grace. I don't have that kind of grace. You're right. In our own strength, we don't. But Christ in us does. John MacArthur said the church as a whole is to be a gracious, mutually forgiving fellowship. Now, before I move to the third and final of these phrases, Rick Mellick is a great linguistic New Testament scholar. He's the professor of New Testament Greek at Golden Gate Seminary in San Francisco. Listen to what Rick Mellick says about these two phrases. Bear with one another, forgive one another. Look at it on the screen. These verses obviously speak to the offended party, not the offending one. It may be that the offending person had little, if any, awareness of what he had done. The offended should take initiative in bearing and forgiving. Rather than waiting for the offender to apologize, by bearing and forgiving... The conscience is cleansed, the matter forgotten. The burden is lifted, and the offended can think and act like Christ, even toward the offender. Harboring resentment and ill will toward another does little good, and to do so is beneath Christians. Anyone can hold grudges, but the mark of Christians is that they do not. Bear with one another. Forgive one another. Let me give you the last statement. Pursue peace with one another. Paul said it this way in Colossians 3, 15. I want to read that verse again. It says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. To which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. That phrase, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, it sounds kind of passive. When we read it in English, like it's, a, um, it's an, an action or, or a, a condition that we're to allow. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. But actually in the Greek, it's an imperative. Meaning it's not a condition to be allowed. It's an action to be taken. It's a command to be obeyed. I'm to do all that I can to pursue peace in my relationships with others. That's why Paul wrote it this way in Romans chapter 12, verse 18. Look what he said in Romans chapter 12 and verse 18. He said, if possible, 
so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Some great phrases there. If possible, so far as it depends on you. Because here's what that means. Ultimately, there's an end to what you can do to pursue peace with others. But what he's saying here is that harmony with others may not always be achievable, but believers should not be responsible for the lack of peace. I may not always be able to reconcile the relationship, but it shouldn't be because I hadn't done everything within my power to try to reconcile that relationship. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. As a follower of Jesus, I am to do everything, everything within my power to make right a wrong. I'm to do everything within my power to make right a wrong. Look at the way Jesus addressed this in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus establishes this as a priority in the church. In Matthew chapter 5, look on the screen in verse 23. Listen to how Jesus said it. This is in the most powerful and famous sermon Jesus ever preached. This is right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to what Jesus said. Therefore, if any of you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Sitting here at church. Teddy's over here on the piano. God puts it on your heart. There's something between you and a brother or sister in Christ. Here's what Jesus said. You stop worshiping. You pack your stuff up. You go find them. You make that right first. You make that right first. Listen to what Martin Lloyd-Jones said. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. If you are in a state of conscious enmity against another, if you are not speaking to another person, or if you are harboring these unkind thoughts and are a hindrance and an obstacle to that other, God's word assures you that there is no value in your attempted act of worship. It will avail you nothing. The Lord will not hear you. According to our Lord, the matter is so vital that you must, as it were, even keep God waiting. Go and put it right, he says. You cannot be right with God until you put yourself right with man. And we wonder why the church in America is dying. Let me tell you why the church in America is dying. Because our churches are filled with unreconciled relationships that we've swept under a rug. And the Holy Spirit of God is waiting on us to get right with each other. And when we begin to reconcile and confess our sins and forgive and bear with one another, we will see the Holy Spirit of God move among us. I've been in churches where it's like being at weddings. Everybody on this side sitting with this family. Everybody on this side sitting with this family. Everybody knows it. Nobody will deal with it. How do we do it? 
Well, let me give you an example. And I, I, I got to wrap this up. We got we to finish. I wish I had about another hour. I really do. I, I, thank you for that. I know everybody doesn't feel that way. but I. <laughs> Matthew 18. Matthew 18 gives us a prescription of how to reconcile relationships. Now, what I'm about to read for you in Matthew 18, verse 15, if you're familiar with this passage of Scripture at all, you're familiar with it because probably somebody's told you these are the steps of church discipline. But Matthew 18, verses 15 and following, are at their core not about discipline. They're about reconciliation and redemption. And if you're reading these verses thinking about discipline, you've missed the whole heart of why Jesus gave us these verses. These verses are given to reconcile and redeem, not to discipline. Listen to what it says. Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. Let me tell you the first thing you do. If there's a problem between you and a brother or sister in Christ, first thing you do. You don't go talk to a bunch of people and ask them to pray about it. Christians way of gossiping. That's not what you do. Let me tell you what you do. You go to them in private. Why? Because you may be wrong. And if you go to them in private and get it cleared up, then you haven't smeared their name in the mud with your wrong perception about what's going on in their life or between the two of you. You go to them in private. 99% of the problems in the church would be resolved if we just honor step one. Keep your mouth shut, go to them in private, and talk to them. Talk to them. And listen what he said. If they listen, you win. Everybody wins. You win. Your brother wins. The church wins. The fellowship wins. Our city wins. The world wins. We win. Just go talk in private. And then look what he says. Verse 16. If he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Here's what he says. If he doesn't listen, if, if you can't reconcile it, get you a couple of godly people that can go with you, not to back you up, he says, so that every fact may be confirmed. So they can have some objective looking at this situation and go, wait a minute, you know what you said? That's not really right. I mean, I see this a different way. So we can make sure that we're all seeing this the same way and that we have a right perspective about it. That just makes sense, right? Bring somebody with you, sit down, have a conversation, seek God together. Because here's the reality. You might be the one who's wrong. You may have it all wrapped up in your heart that you know what's going on and you know why the offense is there, but a couple other people may come and sit down with you and go, hey, dude, you're the issue here. Then you'll be glad this isn't about discipline, but about redemption and reconciliation, right? What if they don't listen then? Look at verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them... Tell it to the church. What does that mean? It means you get spiritual leadership involved. Small group leaders. Ministry leaders. Pastors. 
pastor, small group leader, this is this. Listen, we got this. We, we're trying. We can't figure out how to reconcile this. We've had some other people look at it. We can't figure it out. We need some spiritual authority to step in here and help us figure this out. We want to reconcile. We want this to be right. Help us. Get spiritual leadership involved. Listen, if you come to me and say, Pastor, I heard so-and-so was blah, 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 or Pastor, this person did that, the first question out of my mouth is going to be, have you talked to them? Because if you had not talked to them, stop talking to me. It's wrong. It's sin against God. And it's just as wrong as what they may have done. It's wrong. Jesus gave us a model of how to handle this. We don't have to go create one. Go to them in private. If that doesn't work, take a couple of people with you so we can get it all on the table. If that doesn't work, get, then get some spiritual leadership involved. What happens if that doesn't work? Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. What does that mean? Well, who were Gentiles and tax collectors? Lost people. How'd Jesus tell us to handle lost people? Throw rocks at them? Alienate them? Ostracize them? How'd Jesus tell us to relate to lost people? Pray over their soul with a broken heart? You hear this passage as it's fleshed out? In the context of reconciliation and redemption? I want to read it to you again the way Eugene Peterson wrote it. Listen to what he said in his paraphrase of the New Testament. Look at it on the screen. He said, if a fellow believer hurts you, go and tell him. Work it out between the two of you. If he listens, you've made a friend. If he won't listen, take one or two others along so that the presence of witnesses will keep things honest and try again. If he still won't listen, tell the church. If he won't listen to the church... You'll have to start over from scratch. Confront him with the need for repentance and offer God's forgiving love. You've probably heard the name John Wesley. John Wesley, who's the founder of what we know today as the Methodist church in the world. John Wesley said this, whoever follows this threefold rule, talking about go in private, take two or three, tell it to the church. Whoever follows this threefold rule will seldom offend others and never be offended himself. Do all that you can. Now, here's what we don't know about this process that Jesus gave us. Jesus didn't put a timeline on it. You don't go in private on Monday, get two on Tuesday, tell it to the church on Wednesday, and on Thursday, assume he's lost and start praying for him to be saved, right? He didn't give us a timeline. Why? Because it's a relationship. You ever tried to put a timeline on a relationship? How long did you date before you got married? There's about a thousand answers in this room right now, right? Why? Because relationships don't follow timelines. This process should be bathed in prayer. This process should be done in submission to the Word of God. This process should be done introspectively. So here's the closing application. I'm going to wrap up. It is impossible to be right with God and not be right with God's family. 
not possible. I can't be right this way if I hadn't done everything I can do to be right this way. Now, when I've done everything I can do, and listen, by doing everything you can do, it doesn't mean everything in your own opinion. You need to get somebody else to confirm you've done everything you can do. When you get there, then you've got to leave that to the Lord. You've got to trust Him. I'll close with this quote by Roy Hessian. Roy Hessian wrote a book called The Calvary Road. If you've never read it, must read. I think we only have eight or ten back here at the resource table, so they're going to be gone after this service, I'm sure. But if you've never read The Calvary Road, it's a little book. You can read it over the Christmas break. I mean, it's, you can read it in the afternoon, a little short book. Probably the most powerful little book I've ever read in dealing with interpersonal relationships. Must read. You can get it online. You can buy it on iBooks. Calvary Road by Roy Hessian. Listen to listen what he said in the book. Everything that comes as a barrier between us and another, be it ever so small, comes as a barrier between us and God. Our relationship with our fellows and our relationship with God are so linked that we cannot disturb one without disturbing the other. We have responsibility to reconcile, to do all that we can to pursue right relationships with each other. What a demonstration of the gospel when the world looks at a church filled with different points of views, different backgrounds, different cultures, and sees us loving, honoring, discipling, serving, and reconciling in the power of the grace of Jesus Christ. No wonder Jesus said, by this, all men will know you're my disciples by your love for one another.